Welcome to the very first episode of Between the Bills, for bodies out of control. My name is Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm a journalist living in Macon, Georgia, a mid-sized city in the very center of the state. Like a lot of people, I think reading the news about politics, especially sexual politics, can be discouraging, enraging, and even terrifying. Often it feels like there's nothing but bad news to read, especially here in Georgia. We have the country's highest rate of maternal mortality, primarily among women of color, according to Amnesty International. Many of our public school districts still choose to offer abstinence-only sex education. Decades of redlining, coupled with centuries of discrimination, have trapped many marginalized communities in poverty and denies them easy access to public services. And the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission found that Georgia ranks second worst in the country when it comes to workplace discrimination against LGBTQ folks. We'll talk about some of these issues in depth in future episodes of Between the Bills, but what I really want to focus on are the people living in this state who are working to change these realities. Georgia's cities are hubs for grassroots advocacy and on-the-ground activism, but we're often left out of national conversations in spite of the work we're doing. We can't continue to ignore how much progress has been made as a response to the conservative leadership that's leaving us all behind. Not to mention, the liberals and progressives who claim to stand against hate only contribute to othering Southerners who do align with progressive policies when they write off our whole state. And there's more of us than you think. So in this podcast, we're going to highlight the folks who are doing the work where it's needed most, in a region excluded from mainstream and national advocacy. It's time to change the narrative and recognize the feminist South. Starting with one of the most prominent advocacy groups for reproductive justice in Georgia, Feminist Women's Health Center. I'll be talking to Megan gordon Kane, the public affairs coordinator and lobbyist for the organization, about reproductive justice in theory and practice, and how Georgia exemplifies the duality between regressive politics and progressive people. Megan describes herself as a Georgia native who loves her home state, but knows it can be better. She grew up in Norcross and received her bachelor's degree from Warren Wilson College in North Carolina, then returned to Georgia to attend law school at Emory University. That's where she first got involved at Feminist Women's Health Center. And now, her full-time job is advocating for reproductive justice by lobbying and helping other Georgians discover their power to do the same through workshops, trainings, and panels. She said that the clinic at Feminist is the only one in the state that provides medical care and engages in community outreach. On the medical side, they provide abortion care, contraception, STI testing and treatment, and a new trans health initiative that provides hormone treatments and other services for transgender folks. The staff also has a full-time grassroots organizer, and they table at events and festivals in the area, host educational opportunities like a culturally competent sex ed program, and they have internship and fellowship opportunities to help guide multiply marginalized young folks into leadership roles within the reproductive justice movement. During our conversation, Megan and I talked about the difference between being a pro-choice organization and being an organization that operates on a reproductive justice framework. We also talked about Georgia's surprising role as a safe space for abortion access among the southeastern states, and the impact of feminist advocacy even within our conservative state. Finally, we discussed how the landscape of sexual politics in Georgia muddies the waters of activism. Here's Megan. There's two things that I really love about feminists and the work we do at Feminist. Um, first, I just I really love the reproductive justice framework that we work out of, which was created by black women in the 90s. It basically in recognition of the way that the white feminism of the 70s and 80s was really 
failing them. When you think of the traditional pro-choice movement with a focus on the legal right to get an abortion, it leaves out all of the other things that influence folks' decision-making, racism and poverty and other like forms of violence or environmental injustice that is making it hard for people to raise their families in dignity regardless of whether they have a legal right to get an abortion. As feminists, we define that by the four cornerstones, the ability to decide whether and when to have a child, the ability to have a safe and healthy pregnancy, to parent as a parent with dignity, and to have safe and healthy relationships and bodily autonomy. I love how intersectional it is. It seems to me to be much more in tune with with people's real lives. What about the environment or political situation of Georgia makes this so important here and now? So the thing about Georgia is that we have for a long time actually had the least bad abortion restrictions of the rest of the Southeast. (laughs) And it's not to say that abortion access has ever been easy in Georgia, but just that our neighbors were even worse than we were. And so because of that, Georgia has really become the abortion hub of the Southeast. We have about... 10 abortion providers here, mostly in metro Atlanta. For example, Mississippi has one. Alabama, I think, has two or three. I think Tennessee is down to a handful. We were also the last of all of our neighbors to pass a 20-week abortion ban. We did that, I think, in 2012. We had the, the longest like gestational cutoff of any state, and so we would have folks coming to us from, from all over the southeast. To, to get care later in pregnancy. And now that Georgia's ban is in effect, the, the 20-ish week ban, now that I think the closest states folks can go to, I think are like Colorado and New Mexico, I think. Stripping Georgians of access to legal abortion was one of Governor Brian Kemp's major campaign points in the 2018 race, which he won over Democrat Stacey Abrams with barely 2% of the vote. When his six-week abortion ban passed, Feminist Women's Health Center joined other reproductive justice organizations in lobbying against it. It's not set to go into effect until 2020, but the American Civil Liberties Union and local reproductive justice groups took the state to court in late September to prevent it from happening, on the grounds that it violates Roe v. Wade. The bill only passed by two votes. That hasn't really been reported very much in the the coverage around the bill, but it barely passed. I firmly believe that it would not have passed if it wasn't like a personal priority for the governor. He was personally making phone calls, sending emails, putting pressure on legislators to vote for the bill. And I don't think that it could have passed without all of that. So even though this could technically be categorized as a defeat, the advocacy that we saw in the six-week ban fight was amazing. We had a lot of local reproductive justice organizations involved in that fight and turning out their people. And we had every single day of that fight, like dozens and dozens of people there advocating against the bill. And just the the degree of of engagement of people showing up was just amazing. We just had like and tons of like medical practitioners coming out, lots and lots of people from all over calling and texting and or tweeting at their legislators. It was just really, really impressive. I didn't know that about how it only passed by two votes. Mm-hmm. I have not read that in any coverage. So It was um, really close because people generally didn't want it. I think that 
part of the reason Georgia is in this political environment is because of gerrymandering. Our legislators, every two years when they do the census and then we draw the districts, they sit down and draw the safest seats for the party in power, which has recently in Georgia been been Republicans, but Democrats have certainly been guilty of this in the past and in other states, where legislators draw maps to make their seats safest, which means that Georgia's elections are almost entirely decided in primaries. Because if you have a district that is overwhelmingly Republican, there's not a single chance of a Democrat winning in a general election. So whoever wins the Republican primary is going to be the representative for that district. But typically the only people who vote in primaries are the like the most extreme and the most passionate people on either end of the ideological spectrum, which means that we tend to get more folks this is this is in other states as well. It's not just Georgia. This is the dynamic of, of gerrymandering and like primaries deciding elections is that you get people who are more and more extreme because they don't have to worry about about moderating to win. What they're concerned about is a challenge like outflanking them from like a more extreme end of their party. For example, during the abortion ban debate, we were hearing from some legislators that like maybe they didn't personally think the bill was a good idea, but it was politically untenable for them because they knew that if they voted against the bill, then somebody was going to primary them and say that like you're not anti-abortion enough, and so we're going to defeat you. One of the issues that our conversation brought to light was the difference between being pro-choice versus being an advocate for reproductive justice. Reproductive justice furthers the work of pro-choice movements by working to eliminate other barriers to reproductive health care like abortion, beyond just the legality of the procedure. You know, if folks can get a safe and legal abortion in Georgia, but Georgia's minimum wage is $5.15 an hour, true fact, our minimum wage is $5.15 an hour, like, how free are your reproductive health decisions when we have such deep poverty in the state and we have all these other issues like we don't we don't require maternity leave or paid time off we are trying to get a bill passed that would require employers to make just reasonable accommodations for the needs of pregnant workers such as letting cashiers sit on a stool if they're pregnant or giving them more bathroom breaks if we as a society are not supporting people in having healthy pregnancies, if we're not addressing the fact that Georgia has the highest maternal mortality rate in the country, if we're not addressing that we have one of the highest rates of poverty in the country and one of the lowest minimum wages in the country, but abortion is is available and easy to access, like that is not reproductive justice because folks who, of course, might want to have a child if they could afford one might feel like they don't have a choice but to get an abortion because they cannot afford another child. And that's not the world that we want to live in. And I would like to see everyone, both like activists and politicians and candidates who are speaking enthusiastically and supportively about abortion access, also broaden their framework to understand like the intersectionality of the issue. That last bit hit very close to home. I live in Macon and we have the fourth highest rate of concentrated poverty in like of any county in the country, I think. And if we don't have any abortion providers here in Macon, 
we almost got one last spring, I think, slated to be built. We saw the sign. I was so excited. And then it fell through completely because there's so much protest. They decided against it, and they didn't end up constructing it at all. And the issue with that, I know you already know this, but definitely like the biggest issue with that is that there are so many people in Macon who do not have the means or the transportation or the time off work to travel all the way to Atlanta to go to one of our providers. And so that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm working on this podcast from Macon in specific because it's one of the places where we're, we're like so close to Atlanta, but still so far at the same time. That's where so much of the, not just the activism, but so much of the actual like results of that activism, where the clinics are and where the providers are. We do obviously have activism for it here in Macon as well. We had, along with our very first um, LGBT pride parade in the last 20 years, we also had a um, reproductive rights rally, and I got to go and talk to the people who were organizing it, and they said, you know, usually we go up to Atlanta to hold this, uh, these kinds of protests, but we have started to realize that actually we need to hold that here in Macon too. Like we need to have a voice here as well. So I think that it's definitely true that, you know, it's kind of becoming a more normal, normalized thing to advocate for, like unapologetically. Yes, I love that. And I love that, that you and those other activists are intentionally doing stuff out of Macon. I, I think that it both makes sense for people to be like working out of their homes but also I think that there there can be a perception that, you know, Atlanta is really progressive and outside of Atlanta, nobody cares. That in other parts of the state, being active and vocal about the issues that they care about is um, really helping to both like integrate the movements and integrate the state so it does feel less like Atlanta and everyone else, but also to dispel the notion that Atlanta is is an anomaly in Georgia. The last thing I asked Megan about was Georgia's involvement in national movements. If you remember from earlier, I said that it's easy for other, more traditionally progressive cities and states to write off the South and to discount the homegrown activists that we do have here, who are reacting to their own environments being threatened by policies like the six-week abortion ban. She said she felt that the broader reproductive movement is inclined to discount the South, but that that's not always the case. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, Georgia has a lot of reproductive justice organizations, especially in Atlanta. So, for example, one of them, Sister Song Reproductive Justice, their founder was like one of the creators of the reproductive justice framework and is really highly respected in the community. And so there's 10 or 11 of us all like reproductive health rights and justice organizations on a coalition together here in Atlanta. And that is a much, much larger number than a lot of folks have in their areas. And so within the reproductive justice movement nationally, folks know that like Atlanta's got a lot of great stuff going. We also have gotten, like in the movement, we've had a lot of folks like recognizing um, the success of our fight against the bill, even even folks who don't necessarily realize how close the vote was know the strength of the fight we put on against the bill has reached folks in other states. And so I've had folks reaching who are fighting bills in other states like reach out to me just asking to talk through what they're working on in their state. I've been asked to like present at um, meetings about like how we did it and sort of lessons learned that I would advise for other states. Partly just because of dubious honor of Georgia having been like the first in this wave, 
of six weeks band, but also because nationally in the movement, like folks, folks recognize the strength of what we're doing in Georgia. I think you're right that just like in the broader public, like if you're looking at just liberal people throughout the country tend to write off the South, I think just because of stereotypes about the South being backwards and terrible and a reluctance of other states to accept that they're racist too, even if they don't have histories of segregation. See, for example, people calling for boycotts of Georgia after our ban is passed, because that is the opposite of helpful, but they're wrong. And it's like, if they're not paying close enough attention to realize that Georgia is doing a lot of great work and that typically, like, you know, areas that have had a lot of oppression also by nature have a lot of resistance. And Georgia has a really strong history of social justice work in this state. And if folks don't recognize that, well, then they're wrong and that's not my problem. How folks perceive Georgia really varies based on who you're talking to, because I think in um, among like sort of national democratic political circles, Georgia is being seen really as a swing state. So that was Megan gordon Kane, the public affairs coordinator and lobbyist for Feminist Women's Health Center, a reproductive health clinic and reproductive justice advocacy organization based in Atlanta. If you want to help support Feminist, you can head over to their website, feministcenter.org, and donate, or sign up to volunteer or apply for one of their internships, fellowships, or jobs. To help promote reproductive rights, you're always encouraged to contact your representatives and tell them why you're a supporter not just of abortion rights, but of reproductive justice. To do that, you can call the Capitol Switchboard at 202-224-3121, and they'll help you get connected with your reps. You can also contact them through social media or send them letters to the addresses on their websites. When I asked Megan what people can do to support reproductive justice in their communities, she had something really important to talk about. So it's really, really important that folks fill out the census, which is next year, because every 10 years we do the census and then states in Congress and Congress, like redraw their legislative districts based on the census numbers. So if you want to be like counted and represented in your district, then we should all fill out the census. Also, incidentally, the census is really important, even if you don't care about politics at all, in which case I'm really confused about why you're listening to this podcast, but welcome to the party. <laughs> but <laughs> even if you don't care about politics, like the census also determines how much, for example, federal funding we get for schools, because that's the way to determine how many kids are going to the schools, how many people are driving on the roads, therefore how much money we need to put in for road maintenance, things like that. So the census is really important, both from a political and from a just straightforward, like funding for infrastructure uh, perspective. So everyone should fill out the census. Hey boy, I see you looking at me. That's it for the very first episode of Between the Bills. We'll be back every other week with another discussion about sexual and reproductive politics here in the Southeast. So leave us a rate and a review before you go. Before I go, I want to shout out the lovely band Gamus for allowing us to use their song Let's Pretend We Don't Have Feelings for this podcast. You can check them out on Spotify by searching Gamus, G-A-Y-M-O-U-S. The next episode of Between the Bills will drop October 15th on SoundCloud and here at Pulp Magazine. Worth the squeeze.